Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. The story of evangelical Christianity's relationship with American society and politics is as old as the Republic itself, and its relation to the rise of social conservatism and of a reformed Republican Party is constantly in the spotlight. But what does the next generation of evangelicals feel about being joined at the hip with politics and culture wars? And where do they seek to go? With me to discuss all these questions is Josh, a young evangelical himself and a medical student in North Carolina. Josh, welcome. Thank you, Amy, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So before I start asking general questions, uh, let me ask a personal one. What is your personal background uh, growing up religiously? Um, so I am basically a cradle, I guess, but the best term would be evangelical because I guess evangelical is a pretty broad term that encompasses a lot of things, but I mean, for lack of a better description, I was evangelical. I grew up basically Assemblies of God, which is uh, Assemblies of uh, Evangelical Domination. It's probably one of the most popular in actually in the world at this point. Um, so growing up, grew up completely in the church. Um, and then, I guess, with the standard evangelical upbringing as far as political, cultural, everything else, um, I had a, mostly no problems with how I grew up. I don't, you know, I'm grateful in so many ways for my parents and everyone else I grew up with. Um, but they definitely put a strong sense of right and wrong and um, this being uh true to my beliefs and how I treat others and how I view the world. Um, so I grew up in that respect. And then uh, I basically stayed that way for the most part ever since. I I sometimes, again, I, I right now I go to a Southern Baptist church. Um, though I don't necessarily completely identify as Southern Baptist, but at the same time, as frustrated as I've gotten at times with evangelicalism, I'm still pretty much call myself an evangelical even now. Very interesting. So that was actually the next question I was going to ask. Uh, many many of us observers, especially myself, as I'm not, I myself am Jewish, uh, and many other observers think, well, what is an evangelical and how does it differentiate from, say, a Catholic or a mainline Protestant or an Eastern Orthodox? Like, what is, what are the differences and why is it important? Um, so... Historically, um, and if anyone wants to read more about this, Thomas Kidd is a fantastic historian of evangelical history at Baylor who wrote a book called um, What is an Evangelical? So, and I, I have that book, and he's, he's fantastic in that respect. Um, so evangelicalism in a lot of ways, and at least from what, as far as what I've been you know, read up, is, is fairly a lot of ways American in, in a lot of ways. It started as far back as the first great awakening in the 18th century with um, in America and also in England with uh, the Wesleyan movement, the Methodists, very much about uh, personal piety and personal evangelism as far as uh, sharing your faith with others. Uh, and that propelled things like the 19th century missions movement, actually 18th century as well, of uh, people leaving the West to go abroad to Africa and Asia to go become missionaries. Uh, that spirit has very much been in evangelicalism as a whole since, and it still is for the most part. Um, and But then towards like the 19th century, early 20th century, there came a 
a lot of pressure from secularization and um, from the uh, especially like historical criticism of scripture. And it started to uh, there was a lot of challenges that resulted in things like from like the Scopes trial, and then there was a bit of a and the response to that came as far as uh, breaking up into the fundamentalists and then kind of the more modernists. Um, the fundamentalists, of course, became kind of are now the caricature of a lot of like you know hillbilly Christians with snakes and things like that. And uh, but then evangelical modern evangelicalism really started to come about in the 1950s with the advent of Billy Graham, who were uh, dis- wanted to keep the fundamentals of like Christian orthodoxy, but then make it. I think uh, some of the ways like George H. W. Bush would say, make it kinder and gentler. Um, as, you know, make it a little bit more pal- not something palatable. The culture is the right word, but make instead of being defined by you know we're against this. They try to become more defined by, you know, being nicer or more um, engaged with culture. That's been, evangelicals started to kind of make a push to become more culturally relevant. Um, so, and then, then th- that pretty much gave rise to the modern evangelical movement. Um, now, mind you, not quite so much the political movement for the most part. That came a little bit later. Right, so I was just about to ask you because when it comes to discussions of evangelical evangelical Christianity uh, in public discourse, it tends to pretty overwhelmingly focus on that political element and I would guess both pro and con, they talk, talk less about efforts of persuasion and far more about uh, efforts at some would interpret it as coercion, some would interpret it as securing certain values, but not um, not being in touch in the way in the way you say. What does that did that like lead to a tension like between the people who wanted to get into politics and between the people who said no, we need to, you know, convince people first? Um, so famously, like a famous story in evangelicalism is how Billy Graham uh, got a little bit involved with politics starting with I the Eisenhower administration and then uh, all the way up through Nixon got really progressively more involved until then, of course, Watergate happened. And then Graham later kind of famously disavowed his involvement in that and said it was one of the biggest mistakes he'd ever made. Um, and so Graham, especially after the early 70s, kind of became much more of an apolitical figure. And every, pretty much every press all the way through Barack Obama, you know, always went to him for advice and met with him. Uh, the polit- the real political wing of evangelicalism probably came about as a result from this, you know, the 1960s. And, if, and uh, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson were the main pioneers of that. And of course, I mean, there are probably others of more historians with more knowledge than I would, would know about. But at least from what I know of and what I grew up in, uh, Falwell and Robertson were the main people who propelled that. And of course, some argue that it was due to segregation, some argue due to abortion. There's a long-run kind of fight about that, even among some evangelical historians. Um, but that was the main thing, and especially in the you know, follow on the moral majority came of age in 1980 with the alliance with, you know, when Reagan won. Um, and and from then on, especially when the, uh, with the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist movement, the, as the Southern Baptist became the main flagship, the domination of evangelicalism, 
that political activism was pretty much reflected in the actions of the domination, like when people like Richard Lamb was head of it. And, um, and the high watermark for political evangelicalism was probably the 2004 election. And since then, it's just been a steady stream of defeats. Growing up, um, for the most part, I know people think that politics infest every sermon. And I, I most I can probably count on my hand a number of actual sermons regarding politics that happened in church growing up. Um, a lot of it was more, um, if I remember, like politically Republican political activists getting involved and like people sharing stuff in church and. But the leadership itself tended to not be quite as political, and I think, and you're seeing that divide now. That it's the, it's the congregants and the and the non-leadership who are super political, while the leadership is a little more hesitant to get involved. It's interesting you mentioned that. So you have the leadership who is not so involved. So are there like I guess I would call them middlemen or messengers of politics that work like as go-betweens between the politics and the congregation, or is it sort of like self-styled volunteers? Um, there are, I think one of the foremost, if I could, middlemen I could think of would be someone like Ralph Reed, though I don't, it's hard for me to say how much influence he has. I don't, um, but there are a lot of, especially Republican political outreaches to evangelicals that have been around for a long time. Um, especially, I mean, I remember like people like Carl Rove and the George W. Bush uh, campaign really reached out because evangelicals were such a important part of the W um, coalition. Um, I think maybe back 80s and 90s there was. Now, I don't know that it's quite as prevalent. I think the main middleman now between evangelical um, congregants and politics now is probably Fox News and social media. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I keep hearing that uh, even even people who are relatively you know want to stay political or not, they say, "Look, I give my congregation uh, one speech a week. They're on Fox News twenty four seven. Yeah, that's something I've so heard that's to- repeatedly. Yeah. So I wanted to add, in addition to that, you're talking about the growth of uh, social event, uh, the the growth of being more culturally relevant and also the growth of politics. But there's a substantial uh, part of, I don't know if you'd call it evangelical, I, I'm not sufficiently familiar, the black mainline Protestant or the black uh, conservative Protestant uh, wing seems to have taken a different path, even if they seem to sometimes share theological views. Um, has that always been this way? Have people tried to move together, or is it still everyone's on a parallel path? Um, so the relation between the black church and the white evangelical church is a really long, tragic, and there's just a lot of problems that have been, I mean, arising from the end, I mean, even during slavery, uh, Slave owners would try to, you know, they would introduce Christianity, but then they would cut out parts of the Bible that would maybe think slave make slaves think that slavery was uh, was not right. Um, and which I mean, even in the works of Paul, Paul, I mean, it was Paul would tacitly con, you know say, well, he didn't ever explicitly condemn slavery, but you could tell throughout the right, especially in the book of Philemon, slavery was not. It, w- it was he did not like that it existed. And it's really no coincidence that slavery eventually died out in, in Christian Europe by, I think, at least by the Middle Ages. 
So when slavery was brought back in the 17th century, there was kind of a, there was a disconnect there that they had to get around. And so while they would, um, while they would convert to slaves, they would not give them the whole truth and would not let them have their own, I think they wouldn't let them have their own churches. And it was, it was all very controlled. Once, uh, once 1865 came and it became a little bit more free, uh, there were some mixed churches, but then the problem is in the South, it was very, you know, cultural black people and white, especially post-Civil War, there was not, there was quite a bit of acrimony between the two, especially with blacks being heavily involved with the Republican Party in Reconstruction. And so it just became very hard for the cultures to intermix. And so black churches kind of went on their own developmental path. Uh, black, I don't want to say theology or whatever, but the black church experience is very different than white southerners it's very much they focus very much on things like exodus and escaping slavery and um especially as a group that is very powerless they have it's just a very different emphasis than in the white churches uh and i think another great person to read about this i have a book i read about this is alan cross who wrote a book about, you know, the experience of Southern evangelicalism and the civil rights movement. Um, and so when the black church was, in, of course, fully in favor of the civil rights movement, it caused a divide between the white evangelical movement who, uh, I mean, of course, there you had your KKK members and people who were very much against uh, the civil rights movement. But then there was also kind of the moderates who would be like, well, you know, we recognize that black people have problems and that there's uh, injustice going on, but, you know, we don't really want to do anything about it because, you know, first off, you know, we have the Cold War, we want to focus on that, and we just don't want to rock the boat. And I think, and that's one thing that white evangelical church has, a, has had a problem with, is they've generally been culturally and in the power structure been on top of things, especially in the South, and it is very hard for them to they're very risk averse to giving up any of that comfortable power that they have. And that, and it's a, they do that in a way that the black church has no experience with because, you know, they don't have the same experience. Uh, at the same time, growing up black, there was started to be more and more reconciliation starting in 1995 when the Southern Baptists who were founded on slavery repented and, uh, I think, I can't remember if they banned the fair flag, but they basically, the official repentance for their actions of uh, promoting slavery and civil rights and against the civil rights movement. Um, and it was getting better. You, you started to see a lot more multi-ethnic churches popping up, people of different races. Um, since 2016, that's kind of stopped. And I know there was a New York Times article about uh, how talking how black people who were in white evangelical churches were becoming more and more uncomfortable with Trump and it's and of course in the Southern Baptist we were in the Southern Baptist denomination right now there's a big fight over critical race theory and where the SBC is going to go as far as you know with black leadership and there's yeah it's it's a mess right now and people are dressing it up in different ways but it really comes down to uh, there's just a big, some people are very much on the racial reconciliation train and some people are for one reason or another or not. 
That's fascinating history. Uh, so I actually wanted to follow that up because um, I know that, at least in the North, uh, what is broadly called evangelical uh, was often very, very, very uh, strongly uh, socially reformist. You had people who got on board the prohibition train, you had people who got on board the abolition train, and it sounds like there's a very stark difference uh, with the tradition in the South. Uh, could you perhaps uh, elaborate on that and why that is and what's the basis for that? Um, so I guess on that train, like my, um, my, of course, my, my background for my ancestor, my father's side, we're all very much in the South, and my mom's side actually from the Midwest. And they're, um, they're very much in that vein that you're referring to. They were, um, a lot of them were Mennonite and along with other like very uh, social reform types. And it's, it's, uh, it's different. I don't know how much they were uh, as far as civil rights stuff. I know, the interesting thing is, I know that parts of them were in the Ku Klux Klan in, uh, in Nebraska, but it wasn't in, against uh, black people, it was against Catholics. Um, I think there was much more of an anti-Catholic bent to them than there was in the South. So it, was a, it had a bit of a different feel on that respect. Um, and but at the same time, things like prohibition, there were still elements of that in the South. I mean, you can still I think even today there are still counties in the South that ban alcohol. Um, it it's a, there's when you look at the history of Christianity, even especially American Christianity, there's always been a reformist puritanical streak that manifests in different ways, and it just in different cultures it'll be in different ways. In the South, in a lot of ways, it was uh, unfortunately manifested in racial ways. And in the North, it would manifest things like prohibition and um, I guess like especially terms of things like reformist, uh, like socialism and things like that. Something like uh, what's called the social gospel. Yes, exactly. Um, though that, though the mainline denominations uh, got on that too. Um, evangelical denominations tend to, they would go along with that a little bit, but then always try to make sure the like theological orthodox, theological orthodox views were maintained in a way that mainline denominations tended to not. Uh, yeah, but that that's part of it. Right. So, okay. So, um, what was I going to ask? So. We've gone a long way. Uh, the, the evangelical movement reached its peak, as you said, in 2004. Uh, w is re-elected, uh, among other things, on evangelical votes. Uh, he has a bioethics committee. Uh, he speaks openly about faith in a way uh, a lot of previous presidents perhaps weren't, or at least they were, they were reticent about which god they were talking about. Uh, and then things start to go downhill. And then... Uh, 2015, 2016 happens, and there's just this sort of sense of panic, uh, especially in the wake of the uh, Supreme Court decision to legalize uh, same-sex marriage. And that leads to Trump eking out a victory in part due to uh, evangelical votes who were just scared to death that the Supreme Court was now going to be basically a Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, machine. I know how older uh, people reacted. They voted for Trump largely, and perhaps younger younger uh, evangelicals did too, because they were also scared. But four years have passed, and 
not asking you to, you know, give me a scholarly assessment, but based on your own experience with your own congregants and your own uh, experience, how how has the 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 younger the broadly younger generation uh, reacted to the whole four years of constant Kulturkampf? Uh, so there is there's a giant age disparity. Um, the old Microsoft, you know, like take my my parents. People I knew growing up who were that age are generally pretty heavily pro-Trump. And uh, I mean, I remember reading yesterday on a Facebook post some someone I knew, uh, one of my uh, elders growing up, who uh, basically claiming that o- Obama was silencing pastors and that Trump has given us all freedom. And you don't really see stuff like that from people more my age. I mean, I'm 31, and it seems like between 40 and 50 there's a bit of a gap um and i think the one the one problem i would have with my experience is uh, sorry to extract you need it out is that uh i have a little bit of a selection bias because i you know i'm of course educated and like the circles that i've been in as far as my age have been very educated college educated uh evangelicals that's with that disclaimer out of the way i can count on one hand the amount of people who I mean, I don't even actually just I just one hand the amount of people I know who are like my age, around my age or younger, who are excited about Trump. I know a few more who will vote for Trump, but they're not excited about it uh, because they see, of course, they see the Democrats and the left being very much against you know things like religious liberty and abortion. And in that vein, I mean, I know a lot of people who most people I know of my age, my peers from undergrad people the churches i go to now they they might vote trump but they're very much are not on board with the um, non-stop culture war that trump in, uh, represents and in fact i was talking to my one of my roommates and and i of course i think i'm on board with this one to say if it not for abortion at this point i would probably be a democrat um which is amazing for you know if i could see four years ago my 2015 self i was about as hardcore republican as it got but uh it's gonna take a while and and even you can look at the leadership there's a also a divide in the leadership you know the over 50 you look at the super duper pro trump type people in like you know in his who are allied with his administration and on social media they tend to be older like people like robert jeffress franklin graham they're all in their 60s and then you go into the younger parts of things like the Southern Baptists with uh, I think people like Russell Moore, J.D. Greer, David Platt. It's just a, there's a very much a different tone and focus, and not say, I will not I won't say that they are super anti-Trump, but there is just a focus away from politics and more towards local localism and working on your local community to bring change instead of focus putting all your focus on. Uh, the president and you know federal offices. It's just it's. I I know some people might think that you know younger as the younger people take over things our views on things like same sex marriage and abortion are going to change to be more in line with culture. I don't necessarily think that as much as it is, as it is we will become you know more there's a broader focus as opposed to a laser like focus on politics. Well, so so in other words. It sounds like, based on what you've told me, until recently, what dominated was the political movement. That's all anybody ever heard about. That's all anybody ever talked about. 
and now we seem to be reverting back to the pre a little bit more not entirely obviously but a little bit more back to the i guess i would call it the apolitical gram model where you're trying to work more work harder on influencing the culture uh, would i have that right yeah influencing I mean, community yeah that's i think that's where we're going to end up i know there has been um i know what's his name brian burge on twitter who does a lot of uh research on the social habits of evangelicals he I think he sometimes he makes me rethink some of this because he pushes back a little bit on the fact that you know evangelicals are going to turn against the Republican Party. Uh, but again, anecdotally, that's what I would say. Yes, we're um, my generation is very much more focused on things like foreign missions and reaching people in inner cities and just putting all our money and our time into things like that as opposed to politics. Well, speaking of uh, reaching out to people, uh, one of the big things that's uh, come up recently uh, is the Supreme Court handed down a couple of rulings. Uh, one of them had to do with abortion. Now, I'm not going to get into the legal issues because I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, neither uh, am I. They did, <laughs> uh, did raise the interesting question, uh, which I don't think enough people who at least are pro-life activists seem to ask themselves, is the reality that you know Roe could disappear tomorrow, but a very large number of abortions that happen would happen in, I guess you'd call them legally pro-choice states anyway, uh, places like New York and uh, California and elsewhere. Um, do you see? Do you do you see perhaps also among the younger crowd saying, you know what? Instead of constantly investing uh, in trying to get people elected who may or may not overrule Roe, Ro, Maybe we should invest more and more uh, in, get, in getting communities uh, where, there, where a lot of abortions happen and try and you know, dissuade them and work with the communities to help them find other paths. Is there perhaps like a direction like that or not just yet? Yes, and I think, I mean, especially with our focus on it, that's gonna be part of it. Um, that's why I've seen things like crisis pregnancy centers come into a lot of, uh, that's where a lot of people were supporting that. Uh, I mean, because I think the fact is, and I sometimes I think that you know, professional pro life people just kind of ignores this. If we take get rid of Roe, we're not going to end abortion. It's you know, we're still going to have abortion in places like New York, and so we can pass all the laws we want to in Louisiana. But when an abortion is a you know six hour car ride away, what real good is that going to do? And I think, um, and uh, Sarah Quinlan wrote a really good piece about this, and I think it was the Bulwark about basically. You know, we can do all we want with Roe, but then changing culture is a hugely more important part of, of ending, you know, the abortion. Uh, and I think that's where, I think a lot of people, evangelicals my age, I think we get that. Because a lot of us, we've grown up in this. And we're kind of, I feel like we're getting out of our bubble in a lot of ways. And... And we know, you know, we grew, we've grown up in a culture that's a heck of a lot more hostile to our beliefs. So we've had to, you know, change our tact and be a lot more, instead of being hard-edged, political, you know, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat in this respect. And, you know, legal stuff, okay, but, I mean, obviously at this point, we're losing on a legal level. And there needs to be a change in tact because what we've been doing for the last 30 years obviously isn't working. 
It's interesting you should mention uh, getting out of your bubble because you know I I come from a, a minority that's also gotten used to how to deal with you know a society that often doesn't uh, isn't always so positive about your beliefs. So the so let me take an example of like how is it for instance to be uh, a deeply religious person in a medical school where you know sometimes certainly in the sciences people can perhaps skew more secular or at least skeptical. How does how does one man- how does one manage that and have an influence without getting into shouting matches? Um, contrary to I know some people think that especially academia is nothing but you know left wing people canceling and I mean I my experience in medical school has been fairly okay I mean I I was vice president of my Christian club on campus and. It, we never really endured a lot of pushback to people. People just minded their own business because, especially at school, like you know, med school, you don't have time to get involved with you know, spats like that because too much work to get done. Uh, I, I, I guess it's hard for me to say it has been a lot of cases because it really just hasn't. Um, I going forward, I think there are some concerns about things like, especially as society becomes more and more cultural personally against Christians and and were more or culturally ostracized things like, you know, having to force to perform abortions, forced to, you know, do things like transgenders, um, like hormonal drugs and things like that. But as so far, I haven't really experienced that. I think I would say I'm long term a little concerned about it, but for right now it hasn't been an issue. Um and of course, again, and maybe it even depends on the specialty, because um, I'm not doing, I'm doing family medicine, I'm not doing OB. In OB, that might be a bit more of a concern, and OB's culture is maybe a little bit more left-wing. I don't know if, I don't know, might, maybe, maybe not, but it's just because OB is where you do most, you do abortions. So, uh, in some like family meds, it's a little bit more, it's chill, relaxed, and people aren't quite as, uh, you know, all in your face about politics. Uh, when I did my last, when I just finished the third year this last year, I mean, again, as long as, my experience is as long as you're respectful of people and as long as you don't get in your fa- in their face about stuff, people generally just don't, people leave you alone. They don't go out of their way to, in, to cause problems. It's when you get super outspoken people who decide it's their lot in life to, you know, fight the culture. That's when you get cut down. But... If you mind your own business and just live your life, people won't really bother you. Well, that's very good to know and uh, very calming, especially for anyone, for those of us who are on Twitter, like you and me. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, no one I know in real life knows on Twitter, so because I'm nasty. Thank God. Thank God. I think think the insanity level would go through the roof if we were on Twitter. so another question regarding uh, younger people, and I say this as someone uh, from an Orthodox Jewish background who also have, they, they also have problems. How does how does the I mean it used to be uh, in the past it used to be people got um, married fairly early and had families fairly early, uh, but nowadays uh, many more of us are singles, even though we're often quite trying to resolve that. Uh, how does the how did and and we also use different technology. For instance, I use uh, I don't know what they do. I don't know what they do in church. I I use a prayer app, 
so I'm, I'm curious to know what sort of innovations or ideas they uh, commu uh, evangelical communities use to try and keep people coming, uh, not just formally affiliating. Hmm. Um, there's been uh, certain things, like I know for um, things like for tithes and stuff, people, you can do it on your phone now. Uh, I know there's actually a decent push in a lot of like my community's place I'm a lot of is to kind of de get away from technology because in a lot of way I mean I think we recognize how much technology kind of takes away from the personal aspect especially of church community um, like for instance like I try you know with my Bible I actually try to not use my phone Bible now I try to use my regular Bible my paper Bible because uh it's, you know, technology has been good in a lot of ways, but at the same time, there's just something depersonalizing. I like a lot of us feel about that, so we try to go away from that. Um, of course, that's my perspective on it. Um, there's also a lot of some churches who have gone super technology with, uh, some churches actually do multi-site uh, churches, like um, Elevation in Charlotte does that. Uh, it's also Summit in Raleigh, where basically you go in, you treat you like you, you go to church, you go into the church building, and then uh, there might be a live praise band there. I think the ones I've been to there have been. Um, but then the sermon itself is delivered by the head guy who is on another campus, could be, you know, five, six hundred miles away. So yeah, everyone gets together and watches this guy on a view screen. Uh, wow. And th th that's basically their message. And then they come back. It's, everything is very choreographed. Everything is very... It's you know, it takes a lot of work to do it in using technology, but the, you know, they do do that. I personally, of course, don't like that, but that's been one of the probably one of the big trends in evangelical worship over the last maybe decade has been multi-site church models. And of course, if you do it that way, then it's easy to just uh, sit at home and do church there. Which, in that respect, I kind of don't like because so much of church is the community and being around people and just watching. And I think that's one thing that's been hard about coronavirus has been it's been hard to meet with people and we've been losing that community. Uh, like my church in Charleston still has not, we have not met yet since coronavirus started. So, um, and we're talking about meeting, but right now Charleston's pretty bad for coronavirus. I don't know if that's going to happen, but um, so I think, again, with technology, technology is neutral and it, there's good and bad uses. It depends on how you use it. I think one of the challenges for churches and evangelicals is figuring out the good ways to use technology and the bad ways. And and I think we're doing that along with the rest of society. We don't know exactly how, what's good, what's bad yet. And it's going to take time to figure that out. Entirely fair enough. Um, speaking of uh, things that, you know, they're, they're not new, but uh, they're now more mainstream and learning to deal with it. Um, you know, every statistically speaking, regardless of how one put, uh, uh, plays with the numbers, there are any given community will have some number of people with a different uh, sexual orientation, or perhaps uh, a, I guess I'd call it a non-statistically normal uh, gender identity. Uh, how has how has your community and perhaps the broader church tried to balance? On the one hand, you know, being welcoming, but on the other hand. Maintaining uh, it, maintaining some degree of orthodoxy on that. Uh, that's a that's that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, I know. Now it's 
it's been very varied. There are, are some who are, in, are on a spectrum of very much anti anti LGBT and who have you know that don't make them welcome. You don't you know don't associate with them. And there's on the other side, it's the there's some who are a lot more you know a lot of men come and do leadership positions and basically affirm them in everything they do. Um, it. Because the interesting thing is cause we've been told by a broader society a lot that to be, to fully, to not, you know, stem the bleeding and become fully, you know, relevant society, we have to become pro-LGBT, which, okay, but the problem with that is, is there are denominations that are pro-LGBT, like, you know, the Episcopalians, PCUSA, and they're losing members just like we are. So it's... One of the things about evangelicalism and Christianity is even further is, you know, at what point, you know, social change can be good, you know, be more welcoming, but then at what point are we letting our beliefs being defined by culture? And especially when you look at Christianity, when it's at its best, is Christianity is at its best when it's being countercultural. And if we're not providing something countercultural, something that is different and we're not the salt and light of the world, then I mean, what's the point? Um, I there, of course, I am very much orthodox in my my personal beliefs about sexuality. But at the same time, I do recognize that the church has a lot of times failed LGBT people, and no matter what you know their belief or actions orientation, they're still made in the image of God, and God loves them every bit as much as He loves me. And how can we? And I think, and we're still a lot of ways figuring this out, but how can we love them and make them welcome in church while still upholding our beliefs? And I think there are some who have done that better than others. Um, there is um, there's a group that is focused on making um, uh, celibate LGBT people, you know, giving them a place to, you know, work with each other, learn from each other, have community. And of course, on the super right wing part of evangelicalism, they don't like that, and that's where, of course, then you, that's where you get things like conversion therapy and and things like that. And it's a tight rope to walk, especially in our society. Um, and the problem is, we haven't always walked it very well. Even those of us who, you know, think that you uphold traditional orthodox beliefs on that, and. And of course, in problem, that probably has contributed a lot to our cultural problems because, we, the, you know, when we hammer people over with the Bible, that's you know, it's not exactly loving, and it's you know, and God calls us to love, every, you know, love people, and it just a lot of ways. Unfortunately, the church has not held up its end of the bargain on that, and we paying when we're paying for it now, we'll probably continue to pay for it in the future. So, it's a it's a hard issue, and I think we're all trying to work our way to figure out how to approach it. Um, and it's kind of an ongoing conversation because, you know, I think even now we still haven't completely um, reached a resolution. I don't think we will for the simple future, but I don't know. I'm kind of in the mid, I'm, I guess, for lack of a term, a moderate on the issue, but, you know, I, that's where I'm at. That's entirely fair. But you brought up an interesting question while discussing this and said that Christianity as a religion works best counterculturally but how does one on the one hand be countercultural but on the other hand be a part of the culture because as you said 
uh, ever since the 1950s and certainly since the political wing is starting to weaken a bit, you wanted to become part of the culture. So how do you walk that tightrope effectively? Yeah, and that is kind of the continuing problem in evangelicalism is, how, is that question. How do you be counterculturally yet be involved in culture? And I think to a lot of the main problems evangelicals run into is when they lose sight of that counterculture aspect and they become too involved in culture. And it's like, um, it's kind of like the story with the frog. When you put a frog on a you know, hot stove, it's, you know, if it's completely hot, they'll run away. But if you just kind of start ease into it, it becomes more and more, you know, used to it. So it's a problem. It's how, it's, and I don't think we fully ever really resolve that. Uh, because especially in places like the South, where we become part of the culture, we lose that countercultural witness, and we just become part of, become indistinguishable. Uh, I think part of guarding against that is going to be, you know, always looking, our, you know, continually every day, you know, looking at as part of our community. Are we still assaulting the light of towards our community, or are we becoming part of them? And I think it's. I don't necessarily know like concrete ways I could say we could do that, but I think it's just going to be part of a community, ongoing community conversation of how to avoid that. Because as evangelicals, we haven't always been able to maintain that line. And when we and when Christianity becomes too much part of the culture and lets culture speak to the faith instead of the faith speaking to culture, we historically have always run into trouble going back to Constantine. All right. Well, you know. These are the kinds of things like in my in my community as well. We struggle with the question of you know Torah and science, Torah and and culture. The, so my my experience, at least from reading our history, with that is that this isn't a question I don't think that can really be resolved. What happens? Is the best option is that you have a fruitful tension between the two, if you will, mm-hmm. where the two really sort of influence each other in a way that really benefits both. And I hope that uh, that's what works here. Yeah, that sounds good. Josh. Josh, thank you very much for coming on. I learned a lot today. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right.